next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. The West does not respect the numbers we have in Africa enough. We have to create our own platforms and then let them also beg to come and be part of what we create. I have been very pleasantly surprised, very encouraged by the way that people have responded to Ake Festival. Every year the numbers are way up. This country is full of unbelievably intelligent and smart and sharp and innovative young people. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h dot c-o. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. My guest today is Lola Shuneye. Lola is a poet, a novelist, and the author of the critically acclaimed novel The Secret Lives of Babashaki's Wives. It's a compelling and beautifully written story of polygamy and rivalry in a Nigerian family. In it, Lola painted a portrait of a family, a microcosm of a nation gripped by the past and yet surging into the modern reality. If you call Lola a feminist, you may be right, but only if you see her as a type that envisioned an independent, educated, and vocal African woman who is free from the discriminatory and sometimes hypocritical limitations that society, culture, and religion might have placed on her. Lola is the founder of the Ake Arts and Book Festival, an annual literary event that takes place in Nigeria. This episode was recorded at a live event in Lagos 
sponsored by the British Council. In this conversation, we discussed Lola's family background and how it influenced her work and views. We explored other things that she's working on, a technology platform that will make it easier to publish, discover, and read books from African writers. Lola, welcome to Beauty in the Future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure having you here, actually. Like I said, I've always interacted with your work. I think a lot recently on Twitter, thanks to the beauty of Twitter that is making the world a truly global village. So I can wake up in the morning and go through my Twitter feed and know what you're thinking about last night. Yeah. (laughs) Normally, it's nothing important at all. I'm normally just responding to something I've read that I have found interesting. And I always feel it's kind of dangerous to put my opinion out there because I don't know if there are a lot of people who actually think like me. So I'm always quite pleasantly surprised when people retweet or like a particular opinion that I have. So So you're surprised that people actually agree with what you're... Sometimes it's, it's just nothing particularly interesting. Okay, yesterday I read that um, people who have the O blood group tend to get malaria more than people who are perhaps A or AB or whatever. And I'm O positive, but I haven't had malaria in 18 years. I remember because the last time I had it, I was pregnant with my second child. Interesting. And I very rarely get bitten. But having said that, if you read my Twitter bio, um, it says mosquito slayer. So I tend to... You know how to spot ah, them. I can spot them and kill them. I can kill them with my eyes closed. I'm a real expert. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe I should get my house not too far from yours then, because they tend to catch me a lot. I don't kill for people. I only kill for myself. Uh, Mine has to try. (laughs) Just have to try. So one of the first questions I want to ask is this. Um, I read somewhere that in 1996, you got 10,000 naira from the late Cicero Bolaige to publish your collection of poems. That's super interesting to me on two levels. One, that you got a very good information from Polaike. That's great. Two, what impact does that have on you uh, to get that kind of money, which I think is a lot of money at that so then, yeah. to publish your set of poems? I met um, Uncle Bola Ige um, at an as- Association of Nigerian Authors event. He was a very enthusiastic supporter of the arts, of literary events in Ibadan. So when I finished university and I joined the Association of Nigerian Authors, I think I was even the deputy PRO or something, I was kind of you know, involved with the setting up of these events and of course attending them. And he would often host these events, so we would all go to his house. And that's how my relationship with him started, because at every event I would get up, read a poem, or read someone else's poem, and he took an interest in my work. And he started to ask me when I was going to publish a collection of poems. So that was kind of between 1994 and 96, and by 96, he had become like a second father to me. I found him to be a fascinating man because he had the most incredible stories about his own life and his interactions with different people. But within all that, he was constantly pushing me and saying, look, this person has now published a collection of poems. Where's yours? When are you going to do this? When are you going to write a story to read? You know, he was that sort of person. He wanted everyone to, no matter 
who they were. He wanted you to feel valued, and he wanted you to feel that your work was appreciated. And we have a running joke amongst us authors because Uncle Bola would say, write this book so that you can win the next Nobel Prize for literature. And you can be the winner, you know, the Nigerian winner. And he says that to most people. And this is the thing, you know, when he was saying it to me, I was very happy until I realized he was saying it to Ogaga Ifowodo, Obin Wakama, every single, <laughs> you know, author. He has such a belief that we can win another Nobel Prize. Apart from the belief that, um, that we, can, we could, you know, possibly win one, of, of which I have no doubt, um, he was just that sort of person. He always wanted people to be the best that they could be. So he would set you a really high standard, a really high bar, and just kind of enjoy watching the journey of you getting there. And of course, I've never met him, but I've read a lot about him, and I've listened to him speak uh, mm. at a distance. He's such a good orator. Mm. Uh, like for most people I don't know, was the Attorney General of Nigeria. Uh, he was the governor of Hodoyo State, a politician, author, a thought leader in many respects, and an orator. And I'm hearing here for the first time that he was quite involved in the literary yeah. world. Um, how was it like with him? Because I know he does write a column in a newspaper every week. Um, did he ever publish a book on his own? Do you know, I, uh, that's a funny question. I'm not sure. I know that several books have been published um, with pieces for him, dedicated to him. So you have the Badomesiogo collection that many of us contributed to. Um, but I actually, I'm not sure. I don't remember ever seeing a book by Bolaige. Don't forget he was also, a, well, obviously a lawyer. So I'm thinking perhaps we're just looking in the wrong Places. places. So let's go back a bit before you start having us uh, encouragement from people like Polaike. When did you first publish your first, um, not publish, wrote your first literary piece? I like to say when I was about six years old, I went to boarding school when I was six. My parents sent me off to Edinburgh in Scotland and I was quite young. Um, at six years old, I look at my own kids when they were six and I get palpitations, you know, when I even think of them being separated from me for any length of time. But my parents, um, since my five brothers and my older cousin had all kind of passed through the preparatory school and then on to senior school in Edinburgh, my parents just kind of wanted me to get on that train, you know, as quickly as possible. And so I went and I was, um, apart from the headmaster's daughter, I was the only girl in the school. In fact, they couldn't create a dormitory for us. So I used to live in the headmaster's house and share a room with his daughter. So we're the only two boarders at the school. Oh, it wasn't um, a boarding school? It was a boarding school. Um, was it a boys' school traditionally? It was a boys' school. Cargofield School was a boys' school. It's the best prep school in Edinburgh even now. So every Sunday, we had to write letters to our parents. Not like these days with email. A handwritten letter. They'd give you these kind of foldable airmail um, sheets where when you finish, you fold it and lick it. And the letter and the envelope are all one. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I've, you know I've the seen one. one of those. Yeah? Yes, I know that. So I would start writing to them. And what do you write your week so far? Yeah, you just write about what you've done, what you've eaten. It's crazy because it was something you had to do. 
You couldn't say, but I have nothing to write to my parents and I wrote them last Sunday. Why am I, you know, you had to write something. And I think it was good because it was to kind of get you even as a child to start reflecting on your week. And also the importance of news, making sure your parents knew how you were faring. So it was an interesting period for me. I didn't always get on with the teachers it was also interesting being the only black kid in that sort of school because there was a lot of racism, some of it subtle, some of it overt. And at least, you know, at the time, I didn't realize it was racism. I just thought it was nastiness um, because when you're that age, you're in a class full of white people and white kids, you actually don't really see color. Yes. You see personality, yes. you know. So I would write these letters, and if I felt somebody had bullied me, I would write it in the letter. But of course, we always had a teacher who was there, and the teacher had to read every letter before it was sealed. So whenever I wrote anything negative, you know, they would, you know, harass me and say, "Go, no, that's not how it the happened." Teacher, the teacher would. They never wanted. It. Yes, they didn't want you writing negative stories. So you'd have to go erase it and start again and things right, like so that. Right, so they edit what you see. Well, yeah, kind of, basically. They just kind of monitor because obviously some people will lie there to okay. lie when they're writing their letters. So I think that's what they were trying to control. I don't know. But the interesting thing is when I saw they were doing that, I now started writing in Yoruba. <laughs> Which nobody gave me Yoruba lessons. So that's what I'm about to say. How did I, you know how to write in Yoruba? Well, from watching my mom, my mom writes very well in Yoruba. I mean, up until about 10 years ago, she used to write for Alaroyi, all these Yoruba newspapers, you know. So I grew up, I mean, with hymns, with the Bible, and with texts in Yoruba. So curiosity as well. I wanted to know how it was read. And my mom, whenever she wanted a bit of performance, you know, she would call the kids out and say we should, you know, recite Psalm 23 in, in Yoruba, Yoruba. <clears throat> which is interesting. So we had all sorts of exercises like that. We used to sing Yoruba songs. She would teach us specific poems and things in, um, and songs, little ditties in, in Yoruba. So I started writing those letters in Yoruba. And, you know, when I went and they said, you know, what's this? I said, that's my language. And I'm not changing it. My parents understand. So I still have some of those letters even now. Where even the, you know, I'll say something like Motigbo, but it would be like M O M O T I and then B. And then even sometimes I'd write the D and the B, I'd, you know, switch them and around. Because I was only six. Can understand it. You know, oh, okay. I think my was I was it only deliberate? six years old. Was it Sorry? deliberate? Or? No, I just didn't know what I was doing. Interesting. <laughs> I remember this sentence where, you know, I had all these Yoruba words and I put a dot under every single S and every single O. <laughs> because you it know? looked like what it you see just, in the books. I think I just wanted to just you know, applied my own creativity and I was going hell for leather. If anybody told me I couldn't write in my language, they would have to explain why. So, you know, I started kind of also just discovering how to communicate. So as I grew older, I started writing letters where I would really embellish them. If I wanted to write about a particular event, I would, you know, go into great detail without even wondering if or, or thinking about whether my parents actually found this interesting or not. But, so I think that's how it started. 
you know were you reading a lot as well i was time? reading loads in in the school that i went to after lunch every single day we had to read for 45 minutes in the library the entire school silence so if you weren't reading you were staring at people and if you were staring at people hard enough somebody would come and poke you <laughs> in the eye with I mean a teacher because you were meant to be reading so I was a voracious reader I read and I read everything and anything and I wrote as well I w used to go to declamation contests where I would go and recite poetry representing my school um, when I was seven I got a present from the Prince of Wales who many people don't know that he actually wrote a book called The Old Man of Loch Nagar and when, you know, for a kid, and it's why we do things, you know, at some of the festivals that I organize where we actually go into schools, is that when you make that connection between a book and a writer, it can really change your life just as an individual. Because you read books, but you don't think beyond the book. So once you can see that it's someone that's exactly like me, who wrote the book, then it suddenly becomes something that's possible. That was another, you know, really interesting getting an autographed book um, from you Prince Charles. You got an Charles. autograph from Prince Charles. Every, I don't want you to think it was a special thing. Everybody in the school got a book. Why well, is a special thing? <laughs> yeah. Very few but people was, here at Prince Charles come to their school. Ah, uh, well, you know. That's special. So you started engaging with literature from very early age and yeah. you started not just consuming literature but actually creating one and from what i'm hearing now you started writing to your parents yeah. and embellishing and writing the way some of the books that you're reading absolutely are describing stuff like describing a cloud it's a sunny day and other stuff exactly because what, you know that's how it works yes the more you read there's no real there's no other way there's no shortcuts you know you are basically a product of what you consume. True. Um, and that's exactly how it is, I think, with literature. And when was the first time you actually wrote for an external audience, apart from your parents? Those poems, um, we had a school magazine. So every year, everybody had to write something to contribute something. So if yours got published, it was a big deal. If it was accepted for publication, so that maybe when I was eight, you know, and then I kind of progressed to those contests that I talked about where maybe you'd read, you know, Keats or something. You just go and basically recite with as much uh, style as possible. At what point did you think, um, I wouldn't say no, but think that I might be doing this for a living or I might pursued this as a career? I never imagined that I would. I have to be, I mean, absolutely honest. The kind of family that I grew up in, my father wanted me to be a doctor because he thought I was quite brainy. When I was in Form 3, progressing to Form 4, I just didn't care about those science subjects. I was very good at them, but I wasn't interested. So I basically just registered myself you know, as an art student, and I didn't tell my dad until I was in, you know, maybe end of first term form four. So he had to kind of cope with his own disappointment. And then, but didn't say anything to me because I was doing very well. Even when I finished um, secondary school, he wanted me to study law, but I just wasn't interested. Those classic... Yeah, you know how it is with career. parents. They want you to have a profession, do something professional. I wasn't interested, partly because I think I was quite lazy. And because I knew I was academically 
gifted. Um, I didn't really try very hard. I wanted to coast, to kind of just do the things that I enjoyed. Maybe that was the beginning of my hedonist days. I just feel like it's important to be in a space where you love what you're doing. Is this in um, England or in Nigeria? This is now in Nigeria because right. don't forget when my father was detained by Buhari in 19, well, in Ogun States, the military administrator was Dia, but Buhari, Dia, they were in power. When my father was detained... Was he a um, politician? My father was not. My father is a civil engineer. Major owl supporter, but of course there's history there because my dad didn't go to secondary school. Um, they were so poor that he, his father couldn't even afford to send him to school. All he had was, you know, his grandfather's vest till he was about 12. Um, so what he would do is when kids who went to school would come home on holidays, you know, he would work and save his money and he would copy out entire textbooks and notebooks and study on his own. So he'd had a little bit of primary school education with the missionaries, so he would write until today. His handwriting is really tiny because that's what he would do. But when they did the, I think it was the modern three exams, he got the highest in the region. Interesting. So Awolowo then called him and wanted to meet him and encouraged him to you know, go to school. So from there, he went to Yabatek, from Yabatek to University College, from University College to London um, for university. So it's, it's quite an interesting um, That's story. That's story and journey. But so he fought his way through life. He has always been a hard worker, has the whole idea of us even going abroad was something he dreamt up. The same way he dreamt that when any of his kids hit 18, he was going to buy them a car. You know, that he's that kind of person who just would set himself these goals. Um, so nothing political. He was an engineer just doing contracts. But people put him in the camp of the Awolowo supporters. Don't forget there was a whole kind of UPN, NPN undercurrent, you know, still going on in some of the southwestern states at the time. So he was just doing a few contracts and he was, you know, thrown in jail while I was in boarding school. So boarding school ends, there's never a time that there isn't at least one parent there to pick us up. So sometimes they would wait for us in London. So myself and my brothers who were at another school, we would basically fly to London. So if they weren't there to pick us up at school, we knew they were in London. So we knew what to do. School ended, no parents. So we flew to London, we had our tickets, got to our house in London, nobody there. So we actually had to climb in through the back door window. It was myself, my immediate older brother, Ladi, and then Bolaji, who was older than Ladi. So we said, okay, we've got our tickets. We had chocolate for dinner and for breakfast. We didn't even have any money. And there was no mobile phone Nothing. at that time. To so be. we didn't have money. You know the old styles at the tube stations. So my brother was so brave because we couldn't even afford to buy train tickets to Heathrow Airport. So what he did is he kind of told me to stand in front of him and then once the tiny money yes, that we yes. did have, we squeezed through. He just So you had a took, ticket to Nigeria? We to had Lego. the tickets to Nigeria. We always have our tickets at school. You basically have to give it to them at the beginning of school. Yeah. So we came to Nigeria and we got on the plane, still sort of bewildered, wondering where our parents were. How old were you um, then? I was 10. 
And then we got to Lagos and picked up our luggage and started thinking, oh my God, what are we going to do? So we had planned that we would try and get a taxi that would just take us straight to our house in Ibadan. But when we came out, you know, when we finished picking up our luggage, we saw my mom and my brother, uh, my mom looking very disturbed, very sad, very face drawn. So my first question was, where's daddy? Because to be honest with you, my mom's not that whole visiting school, coming to see people type. She just is not. It's my dad who is almost obsessively chasing up, knowing what you're doing, reading your reports. My mom, anything goes. So, and my mom just turned to me and said, he's in jail. I was too scared to ask a follow-up question, (laughs) you know? So in my mind, I was thinking, what did my daddy do? But my daddy is the most honest man I know. But anyway, that was my life at the time. So So you couldn't go back? We couldn't go back. My mom just said, I'm not going to lose my husband and lose my kids. So that was it. So it's not financial. A lot of it was actually financial too because accounts were frozen. So the easiest way out of that situation was for my mother to just basically start selling, I mean, property. I mean, we had so, I mean, estates huge um, in Ibadan, everywhere, to be honest, because my dad was the visioneer, you know? I mean, he still has a company, Owoje Real Estate, which was registered in maybe 1960-something. He's still he alive. Has, my dad is still alive. He's going to be 90 Interesting. Um, That's this, a good one. this year in November. So Great I, man. Yes, that, that sounds like a very... Still obsessive. About it is things. calling me all the time. Where are you? How are you? Are you still in Nigeria? When are you going? Then if like I'm traveling tomorrow morning, he will call me at 7.30 to say, are you at the airport? Okay, so call me when you land. Where is he from? He's from Elisha Remo. And my mom's from Ikberu. My mom's totally different. She was totally spoiled because she was the daughter of the Alakberu. Ukukwe. Interesting. Yeah. So you're from royalty in many ways then. And Maybe you, just and one a, way. <laughs> and then and you had an interesting child. So that leads me to the other question about your book, the one that most people want to talk to you about, The Secret Life of Babashiki's Wife, which is a reflection of actually most, whether it's not immediate, but extended family in the Southwest. Hmm. Everybody will have a polygamist. Yeah. Uh, one way or the other. It's almost... A norm. And you wrote about it in your book, and you wrote the complexities, the intricacies, and maybe some of the extremities of that kind of lifestyle. And from some of the conversation I've had that you've given, you write, it's a critic of that lifestyle. Rather than just a commentary of this is how African stuff is, you're writing, you're criticizing that. And we can talk about that and your view on it. But one of the key things I want to ask you is, you seem to say that in some places, uh, some interviews I've read that children coming from pregnant parents we have impact on their own lifestyle, on their marriage. It seems you have that view that people whose parents are polygamists, it will somehow affect or impact their own lifestyle. Do you still hold that view? Yes, because I believe that your childhood, whether you like it or not, and your life as an adolescent, there are certain things that happen which will have an impact throughout your life. And a case in point is you know, any kind of sexual abuse, for instance, if it happens in childhood, I mean, any kind of assault, any sort of violence, you know, there's certain things that we act in a way and we don't understand why. If you sit down and you start to really analyze, you'll see that a lot of it is connected to your childhood. Now, in terms of 
you know, the impact that polygamy can have specifically. My mom, both my parents were born into polygamist households. And I have with me the history of my grandmother. My granddad, the Kabesi, was born in 1896. Um, I think my grandmom was born in 1902. Both went to school. My grandfather had a primary education, secondary education, and then went to Wesley College in Ibadan. So lay preacher, used to um, play the church organ beautifully. He wrote incredible books, you know, none of which were published, but he would write books of dreams. He was a real thinker. And my grandmother also educated. So together they were traveling teachers. My mom was born in Okini because that's where they were based at that time. And my mom tells me how my granddad was, you know, a very considerate, very loving husband and father. So on Saturdays, he would just gather everyone's clothes, his, his wife's, his kids, his two daughters at the time, he would wash them. He didn't believe that certain things were things that only women did. That's Same revolutionary. My, oh yeah, the, for the, that time. And my dad is the 20s. same. My dad taught me how to pound yam. My dad taught me how to make asaro. My dad, most of the things that I know how to cook really well is my dad that taught me. Because my mom never really did those things. Like I said, she grew up in a royal household. She had all these wives doing things for her. She never really needed to learn any, you know, those things. So she can do basic things. She just you know, she just, anything that involves hard work, you know, in the kitchen, she'll just tell you, mm, she, she doesn't do that. But anyway, so revolutionary. He was just a wonderful husband. Okay, after they'd been there for some years, um, you know how it was in those days where, you know, there are four ruling houses, but normally they're quite old. So you'd have his, my great-grandfather was also the Alakberu of Ikberu, right? Mm. Then by the time he died, a kind of time had passed, as you can imagine. So it, but it came back to the family again in the lifetime of his children his own children. But my grandfather was the first child of the youngest wife. Why? Do you understand? Yes. So he came back to the family and still met the next generation. So, you know, they said he had to come and be the Oba and he was like, no, I can't do this. I just want to be my little educated teacher. And they told him that so when Ifa has said it's you, there's nothing you can do. So he packed up and moved back to Ikberu with my grandmother. But he very quickly changed. So took the second wife quickly. Okay. Took a third. Let's pause. Rewind. So he moved back and yeah. then when he got there, so okay, I'm a king now. I need to change. Or oh, was that pressure on him to do that? It could have been pressure because my mom told me that his friends would bring their daughters and say, marry her. Because then it still meant something to carry royal seed for you to be able to say your daughter is married to a cabesi was still a big deal, you know, in those days. So I'm not going to say it like he went out chasing these women. Do you understand what I mean? I know that there are some that were brought to him. I know that there's some he saw sitting outside on the roadside and said, Auntie, come, you know. I know that there's that one as well. Um, 
Okay, you said that in the book uh, with Baba Shegi, it's a sense of importance and your level of self-worth and respect in the society by the wives that you've got and the number of wives well, that you've got. Yes. That's a key. Yes Only and one no. wife looks like... You know, people will, they say that. And my grandfather also wasn't particularly rich, you know. They used to say it about him and say, if you, you know, in Remo, which means he wasn't flamboyant. Interesting. When they would say there was a robber or a thief, in the village, he would put on his clothes, get his dane gun, and say, follow me and lead people there. That was the kind of leader that he was. To go back to what you were asking, my grandmother was devastated when he started taking on those wives. And she changed. Even when she died in 1987, she always looked quite sad and disappointed. She would sit down sometimes and say, ha, Abraham Olayinka. Akutukwe, meaning may you go and die again. You so know? he was disappointed. She, she to, uh, Even after he died, it was she was still disappointed. She was still bitter because I think she didn't sign up for that. At the point at which they got married, she didn't sign up for that. I think she really believed that they were educated people and therefore imbibe a lot of the kind of Victorian principles of you know how you live you just you and your husband and your little kids so she was really disappointed she was bitter about that and she was bitter till she died so when i was writing my book even in northern nigeria i did quite a bit of research just talking to people and i realized that look there isn't a single woman on this earth who goes into a marriage believing that she will not be enough for her husband. Because when you look at what polygamy is saying, that's actually what it is. It's saying, okay, I've married you, but you are not satisfying my needs. You have to be happy that I will satisfy yours, but you, woman, are not satisfying mine, so I need to bring in somebody else. Do you understand? Yeah. And just the psyche of a woman, I'm sure you can imagine what that does. The feeling of insecurity and inadequacy. Whatever role you believed you had or whatever position you felt you held in his heart has, you know, levels have changed suddenly. But do you, you know? think where the woman is expecting that to happen, unlike your grandmother who had a different Victorian ethos and she wasn't expecting that because of the kind of man she married. Maybe she had other options as well. She felt, okay, I married Abraham Olayinka because we share the same value of monogamy. Mm -hmm. And then something happened and it, it changed. But if there's a, like my own grandmother, who expect that to happen, mm. or my great-grandmother who was married to their laughing, expected that to happen anyway. Mm. So she wouldn't have been disappointed. Is it an expectation I thing? don't think there's anyone who is not disappointed. There's a difference between you know, approval and acceptance, if you know what I mean. At a point, you can say, okay, it's happened. And you, even if you look at our Yoruba proverbs, what do they say? It's like, when you are only a bad wife doesn't want her husband to take on other wives. You know, there's so many proverbs and sayings condition that the condition the women to expect that. But what I'm saying is there's no woman who isn't at least carrying that little fantasy that is just going to be you and your husband. He will satisfy your emotional, sexual, physical needs, and you will satisfy his. It's the injustice of it that I have a problem with. What do we say because about the second, third, fourth women coming to the show? Yes. What do we say about that? Are they expecting not to be the only one? 
Because they know there's another woman there. Anyways, yeah. they know the first Every woman. Every woman who comes into the household expects, I mean, if you're the first wife, I've explained that one, mm-hmm. how you feel. Yeah? You know the Yoruba proverb, Bashoto, yeah? So, even when the second wife comes, she too thinks she's a favorite. And she has the man's attention. And she's the one who is angriest and most bitter when he now takes a third wife. Because I think it's just a natural response to going into a situation. You have certain expectations. And it's like I was saying, the tragedy of it for me is simply that women are denied kind of similar liberties. So... I would think it would be a a system that was more just and fair if a woman could also take on another husband. I think there would be balance in that kind of situation because, look, when your husband takes on a second or a third wife, you are getting less sex, you're getting less affection, you're getting less attention. So it just seems illogical that the man would somehow still believe that he's satisfying all those women. That leads to the other question I want to ask about, okay, what is the solution here? I mean, it would be too simplistic of me to ask a question about what is the message you're trying to pass across in the Babasagi's book mm. because there's so many multifaceted messages there. It's not just a literary work, it's also a message, but a lot of things out there that one can pick up after that. But you just mentioned something about, okay, why can't we allow polygamy for women as well. What about the point of your grandmother, divorce? What is your view of that? What would you have advised your grandmother in 1940-something when that happened? 1936. 1936 when that happened. And she carried that bitterness for another 50 years till Mm -hmm. she died. What would you have advised her if she was your close friend that you talked together in 1936? What would you have told her? My feeling about feminism and human relations are very tied to what I understand about, you know, human physiology, human psychology, and also self-awareness and understanding who you are, what your needs are, and what makes you happy, and what doesn't make you happy, and what will ultimately kill you if you don't change your situation. It's about kind of understanding a range of those things, which is one of the reasons why I hate the notion of child marriage, because you're marrying somebody who isn't even ready. You know, emotionally, they're just not developed enough to understand these things that kind of help to make you a stable adult and perhaps a stable partner when you marry. Um, So my feeling would have been for her to kind of look at her situation and try to get some sense of what her mental state is. If a situation is driving you crazy, you need to get out of it. You've got to ask yourself, which one is better? Stay with my children, which is why women always kind of stay in relationships where they are emotionally or physically abused. Because they have less options A lot of the time, yes, it's stay with your children and all that, or you get out, you know? And you go and find a man who can give you, you know, what it is that you want or what it is that you think will make you happy. So for me, views about feminism and humanity are very much tied to opportunity and choice. Those two words are very important to me, you know. So it's really her choice. I'm not sure that I would have advised her in the way that perhaps you're expecting me to. But we can talk about the range of options, the scope of the issues, the likelihood of things changing, and where she thinks she'll be in when she's 60. You know, that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. it could have been that kind of conversation. But the choice would have been hers. That's interesting. 
I'm going to ask you a question about religion. Some of the stuff I've read about you as well, you have very strong views about religion, especially the impact it's having on a society now. And particularly, so when I say religion, I'm talking about the Judeo-Christian and Islamic religion. Do you think the African society is better or worse since the introduction of this religion? Because they are quite new, less than 200 years old in Africa. Or maybe Islam is more than that. Maybe Islam is maybe three or 400 years old in Africa. Do you think our society is less, is better or worse in terms of cohesion, our thinking as an African, our self-worth? I think it's definitely worse. I don't subscribe to organized religion at all. I'm not a Christian and I'm not a Muslim. I try to live my life doing the things that I believe are right. And we have enough literature outside religion. There's enough wisdom out there. And once you've been endowed with at least a modicum of common sense, you know what is right and you know what is wrong. So I just think it's really important to establish that. It's not something I would have said three years ago, but I don't really care. I'm kind of in that phase of my life now. So if you don't like me because I'm not religious, I don't really care because it doesn't affect me. I think that religions um, best serve a people when they are organic, when they grow. I also feel, you know, it's very tied to culture and the notion of us serving culture irritates me. Culture should serve us as a people. So if there's an aspect of our culture that is retrogressive, that is harmful, that is causing pain to another human being, we should be sensible enough to say, okay, you know what? Yes, we've been doing it for 800 years, but maybe it's time to just give it a break now. It's not working for us. But we talk as if we are enslaved by our cultures or by culture with a capital C. So I think that has a lot to do with our value system. When you look at in the 1970s, I'm a child of the 70s, my mom used to tell me that when they were driving from Lagos to Ibadan, sometimes that you'd just see a tree by the roadside with bananas. And sometimes there was a sign, sometimes there wasn't saying how much the bananas were. But you would take the bananas and you would leave the money there, right? Now, these communities that put the trays there were not communities that had had a lot of exposure to, you know, Islam or Christianity. Many of them were quite traditional. Do you understand? Do you think it's religion, though, or rather um, when people start coming together and there's the population density and a loss of, and they fight for limited resources, it brings up a lot of behaviors. It does make people rather desperate. But yes. what I'm saying yes. is that I don't understand if there's poverty and people are desperate and if the fact that you have a church on every street and you know people crying out from mosques and waking every, the whole community up in the morning we still shouldn't kind of fall into that trap of being obsessed with money of being living in a way where we have total disregard for the next person a lot of these religions the fundamental um, belief that they are based on is love. But it's really the very thing that's missing. So for me, for instance, if a politician tells me God said, I'm immediately suspicious. In fact, I don't even want to hear the next thing that he has to say because I feel like they're using religion to hoodwink us. Religion has become an excuse for hard work. You know, why are you not going to work across the road? God said I should sleep or 
God said in his time or it's God has not told me it's time to go yet. I feel that it's also like a value system where it's not concrete. It's wishy-washy. There's too much escape from the God figure. There's too much, you know you can do the worst thing and get on your knees and say, God, forgive me. You see, people like me don't have that luxury because I have nothing to ask for forgiveness for. So I have to live with my actions. I have to live with the consequences of my actions. And it's actually a place that I'm happy at because, you know, I have to every day reassess my own life you know reassess if i tell a lie for instance so the thing will be just there disturbing me for about five minutes i'll be thinking what did i do i can't say god forgive me i'll move on you know so i'll be thinking okay should i go back and tell the truth should i do this should i do that but what it's meant is that i hold myself to a very high standard and i think perhaps that's what's missing people use religion as a cop-out way too much in this country. And I get that. And I think I totally agree with a lot of things about hypocritical lifestyles and a lot of things that we use religion as a cop But I think the core of the question was, are we better off as a society before 1840 or 1830, when Judeo-Christian especially started coming to it's s- a, Southwest? A, yeah, it's Yoruba. a difficult question to answer because, you know, don't forget that this same religion, the missionaries, don't forget that it's not just religion that they brought. You know, I think they also brought in the systems of, you know, education, which were introduced, the law, you know, different aspects. So my views on colonialism and all that, that's, you know, talk for another show. But I think there's some value in those other things. But I think we would have been better off if we were open-minded enough to allow whatever our beliefs were to evolve. I think they serve us better. You know, people often say that when people want to um, take the oath and they will put their hands on the Bible, they will put their hands on the Quran, that very minute they start doing all sorts of nonsense that if they give them a Shongu's horn to swear on, people would be better behaved. And they say it as a joke, but what that tells you is that at the end of the day, we know what we are afraid of. People are not afraid of God. And I really believe that. They're not afraid. If they were, there's so many things that they wouldn't do. They have no fear of him, but they still fear Shogu, but they still fear Ogun. If they see like Juju here, now everybody will go that way. But me, I will cross because my heart is clean. (laughs) Or you don't have any belief. I would look at it with great interest. I would probably take a few photographs. If I knew who had put it there, I would want to ask them, okay, what what is there? What is it going to do? And it might come across to me as ridiculous, in which case I'll just quickly forget it. But there could be something interesting there for me. Let's talk about your work with Ake Festival, which, again, is one of those, my earliest interaction with your work is Ake Festival, because I'm familiar with the Edinburgh Festival, massive in England, great place. And then I live very close to Chatham, which is another place for good festival. And then you decide to do something similar in Ake. Um, what has been the impact of that to the goal that you're trying to reach in terms of bringing literature to mainstream and encouraging people to? I have been very pleasantly surprised, very encouraged by the way that people have responded to Ake Festival. You know, the biggest tragedy for me of this country is the inability of the people who are in positions of power to invest in 
creative young people. It's a big thing for me. Because of what I do, I've been exposed to the sort of talent that we have. You know, we haven't even scratched the surface in terms of what people can do and what people produce on their own. But when there's no space, when there are no platforms for you to share your work, for you to just network with somebody else who's doing something similar, you know, eventually you just pack it up and say, well, let me go and work for MTN or whatever, because at least I need the money. This is not to say that working um, in the arts is is massively lucrative, but it's very fulfilling in a way that is, I think, very different. And of course, there's a space for that in every society. So it's just tragic to me that there's very little support for young people in that area. Is that a priority thing from the government or is that a cultural thing that is not putting food on the table for us? What is that? If it's not putting food on the table for us, it's the failure of our institution still to recognize the value. When you say institution, are you talking about the literally the no, art community about, or the government? I'm talking about the government. I mean, we have a culture minister, don't we? Have we ever not had somebody whose portfolio includes supporting the arts, culture, whatever? Yeah, but then you go back to the 70s when you have the uh, Festa. Uh, Festa. And you have when the Muritala Mohammed Airport was built and it was full of heart. Uh, yeah. With Ben Uwen who yeah. did a lot of work and it seems like we have a very good thriving art community supported by the government. What in those days, I think it was different. I think it was individuals who were still kind of who were very aware of the value of the arts and they would basically push for these little things. With Festac 77, I mean, that was like a major event, a major cultural event, right? That's, you know, slightly different. It's like saying, ah, okay, when the Olympics come to Lagos, are we not going to be prepared for it? You know what I mean? The, not the Olympics, all Africa Games, Mm -hmm. for instance. So that's slightly different. But I do agree with you that perhaps there was a time when, you know, the cultural entrepreneurs or people who actually produced um, cultural work were a lot more valued than they are today. It still possibly has a lot to do with, you know, what's available, what people respect. We're living in a time or at a time where largely the main thing that people respect is money. If there was a meeting here today and they said Dangote was coming, this place would be full. Do you understand? It's still how we process things. It, that, that's, again, value system. What we appreciate, what, what is important, what we prioritize. But that's one of the reasons why a space like Ake Festival has been such an eye-opener for me. You know, I knew it would work. I was a teacher for many years. So when it comes to organizing events, it's really my forte. I know what I'm doing. I'm comfortable in that area. I'm sorry, I'm not being immodest. I'm just saying everybody has their skills, right? Mm-hmm. So that's mine. I set this thing up with a brilliant team and my principle was if you build it they will come and every year how did that pan out it panned out beautifully every year the numbers are way up the demographics is what's always surprising in the first year the average age was probably about 45 the average age now is 22 interesting you know so a lot of people from all over the country and all over the continent flock there because young people there. When people say they are our greatest resource, 
You see, they recognize it, right? But they don't know how to take it to the next level. These guys, I, me, I don't underestimate them. I have a son who's 22 years old. I know the kind of stuff he tells me when he listens to podcasts, when he, you know, he's read a book and he's saying, mom, read this book. I mean, that I don't have time, you know, a lot of the time these days, but I'm just so impressed by their thirst for knowledge and their determination to create a world that is comfortable for them. How many people come to the festival on average? You know, it happens over five days. So people come and go a lot of the time. And then we do outreaches. So we go to like schools. So when you count everything, sometimes we have about 11,000. That's a lot. That's yeah, massive. Good numbers. Are you, I, he, I heard somewhere, it might be wrong, that you're planning to bring it to Lagos. Yes, we are. Uh, why? All sorts of reasons. Um, I feel that, you know, I always wanted it to be a roving festival, to be honest with you. Even with the word Akei, it's not just about yes, the place, it, it's not but the cultural. You got it. So I always wanted to be able to take it to different places. In 2014, which was, I think, the second edition, or perhaps even the first, Kayo Defayemi was a governor at the time, and he said we should come and do it, you know, in Ikiti State. So I just thought to myself, ah, the drive from Lagos, bringing all these foreigners, you know, non-Africans and even Af Nigerians who are traveling, come from the US, I was worried. So I said, let's do it, you know, to a place that's not too far from the Moritala Mohammed Airport. But that was always my wish. In terms of why we're moving, um, I feel like I also need to kind of challenge myself just as the director. Um, I believe very much in reinvention, you know, even like when, as a writer, when you write a book, there's nothing that says you write it like this in your first book and you write something totally different in your second book. I just like that idea. So for me, it's a personal challenge. How do we capture the essence of Aki, capture it and keep it and kind of see it play out at a venue in Lagos. That a totally different venue, but still hold on to the... The first thing, because people have warned me, oh, Lagos people are so fickle, Lagos people are this. I said, don't worry. I'm going to put a notice at the door. Please leave your ego, your airs, your everything. Just leave it here. We'll put it in a locker for you. It's interesting. I was at Artex Festival, uh, Artex in yeah. Lagos, and I was quite impressed with the demographics, the young demographics, yep. people there. Oh, everybody taking selfies, though. But it was quite good that they were appreciating art, uh, graphic arts. And I think you're going to have that kind of support. I, ho I hope so. Because, of course, for me, there's another kind of selfish... Um, I didn't mention my other reason for moving. When you're organizing something, I, I really want the infrastructure to be top-notch. Everybody who works with me knows the sort of standards I set for them. I'm not an easy person to work with, you know, because I'm harder on myself than anyone. There's nothing you can tell me that's negative about me that I don't know already, and I will tell you. But that same way, that's how I grade, like, judge the people who work with me. So everybody knows they have to perform at a certain level. Same thing even with the space. I don't want ACs leaking. I don't want people fanning themselves at an event that I organize. So when these things kind of start to break down, of course, maintenance is an issue in Nigeria. That also just makes me think, okay, let's go and try 
another space. It's, right, got it. It's, so it's no hard feelings. The facilities also, I just expect a certain standard. Of excellence yes. that you're not getting. That's, that's what I live oh, for. We're getting to the end of this interview, but I really want to ask about how technology is shaping literature and what you are doing next mm-hmm. with regards to that. I have a view, and it's not uh, empirical. I think it's more of, there's no data backing this up to say that. I think people are reading less long form. People are reading more but they're really short form in terms of tweets and social media rather than reading long form. And I don't have any data to back it up, but I just, it's just uh, anecdotal at the moment. But you might have a different view, and I think you're also vested in making people to read long form content. How are you tackling that? It's all about numbers. You know, part of the problem is we don't have reliable data, but we're kind of working on that. Look, what I've seen at Ake Festival, the festival runs over five days. The main days are just three. In those three days, I don't think there's a year that we've sold less than seven million naira worth of books, in spite of the demographics, yeah? Which means somebody is buying those books. But are they reading it? Of course they're reading the books. They're people who save money every month because they're coming to Aki Festival to load up for the year. Go and look on Twitter. People will tell you, I've just finished this. This is my third book of the year, blah, 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 blah. Of course, Nigerians are reading and of course, Nigerians read. It's not even something I doubt for a second. I've seen it. There are people, when we say Tejukol is coming to Aki Festival, we have a long list of people who are calling us to read the book. Not only do they want to buy it there, they want to buy it beforehand, read it so they can come and ask him questions at the event. Do you understand? So yes, we are, people talk about um, poor attention span yes. or short attention span because and all that. Yeah, women are getting shorter attention span now than before because we have it, so many distractions anyway. Do you really believe that? Because then people are still reading. Yes, people yes. Will do. I think it's a question of choice and where you are at the time. Proportionally compared to the 80s and 70s? Is it fair to compare in a situation where what's available now wasn't available then? It's like talking about our reliance on phones. Look at your own phone there. Even during this interview, you've been looking at it. At the time. (laughs) But maybe even a year ago, some people would have said, "Uh uh-uh. Well, why is he doing that while he's interviewing? But the truth is, there's something you're looking at. It's useful. It's a useful tool. You know, it could be the time or it could be there's a text coming in. Maybe you ask somebody to send you a particular quote that you wanted to talk to me about. So it's not strange to me. So are we just this short attention span that we keep talking about? Is it not something that we've always had? When I was young and I had to go and study, I had short attention span because I prefer to be playing football with the boys and riding a bicycle. Do you understand? So again, I'm sure my mom would say Lola has short attention. She has issues <laughs> around her attention span. Well, you Do you understand? But my kids and my children, they read a lot. And a lot of my friends' children and a lot of my friends read. My dad reads a lot, you know. So let's forget about whether or not people read. People read, right? But what you said earlier is really important in terms of having figures, data on what people are reading. So two years ago, I set up Weeder Books because I just wanted to create another platform for people to publish books, for books to be made available, again, to feed this need. We are on the third print run of Ayobami Adebayo's Stay With Me. It came out in October last year. We're going back to press and you're telling me that people don't read. Are you joking? 
So for me, okay, we've got Weeder Books. So I mean, as somebody who is a fundraiser, I'm always looking for organizations and companies who can support some of my own dreams and things that I want to do because I don't have money, thanks to Buhari. So <laughs> no money in our family again. Everybody is hustling. So um, the what I did is I got Sterling Bank. I had a fantastic meeting with them. And they were really excited about some of the ideas that I had. And the key idea um, was to set up an ebook platform, which not only will the books be available, affordable, and this is in tandem with the physical book. So you have the physical book, you have the ebook, but you also have an audiobook. The next journey after that is to try and create audiobooks of those books in indigenous African languages. So I'm trying to create an app, right, that works for this continent. I am sick and tired of, you know, I want to read maybe Chintu by Jennifer Makumbi, who's from Uganda, right? Everybody's talking about that book. I'm Nigerian. I can't get the book unless I get to England, order the UK edition on Amazon, bring it to Nigeria to read or give it to somebody else to read. Do you understand? I want people to have access to books from all over Anglophone Africa for now, straight away. So if we publish a book, I want people in South Africa, Nairobi, wherever they are, to be able to download it. What about Kindle? Is Kindle not doing that now? There are sometimes issues with access. For different people with Kindle. But again, for me, I don't think we're going to move ahead at the rate at which we ought to until we create our own things. The West does not respect the numbers we have in Africa enough. And that's why they really don't care. If they really did, there would be an Amazon in Lagos right now. There would be a store. Do you know what I mean? Where they can deliver to your house. Is that a reflection of whether respect or a reflection of the numbers is not supporting that? They don't have enough people ordering or buying those books or those items that they're going to give. If you ask Jumia and Konga, you'll hear a different story. That's the truth. We have to create our own platforms and then let them also beg to come and be part of what we create. You know, and this is what I was saying earlier about what hurts me. Because there are kids in this country, in this Lagos, who are doing unbelievable things with apps that are specially for us. Even an app for where to reach a booker, you know. So you have the app. You want to go and eat Amala. You can press it. It will direct you to the nearest one. We have to create things for ourselves and not constantly just rely on the West creating them for us. And even if they create it first, we take the idea and we adapt it to work for us. So I'm really, really passionate about this. So this app, it's an app for Africa. And it's just called the Weeder app. And with the support that I'm receiving from Sterling Bank, who are really investing in this and kind of the power behind it, um, I think it's going to be something that's going to be quite important for the development of literature. But having said that, my other interest is data. I want to know who is reading what. Not in terms of the individual, but at the beginning when you register, whether you are male or female. I want to know if it's true that even in Africa, that more women read than men. I want to know if it's true that men read more non-fiction than fiction. I want to know, okay, in February, 
How many downloads did we have compared to Christmas time in December? I feel data is the beginning of everything. And without the data, sometimes you're just kind of clutching at straws. So this data will be very helpful for other people who want to develop apps to support reading, publishers on the continent, booksellers. So yeah. So it's going to be a marketplace where publishers can publish books, authors can also self-publish yes. their books, yes. and people can access and buy those yes. books. Yes, and you know we're setting up a bookstore right here in GRA. You're also well. setting a physical, physical bookstore. bookstore, yes. Apart from the online Yes, this app. is right. In and fact, the online bookstore is something I would like to work with. There's a young girl called Toby Enyade who runs a company called Roving Heights who is doing amazing things with distribution. So my dream for her would be for her to grow what she does because that also then takes care of a certain aspect of the value chain. Do you see what I mean? And that's what we need. Somebody young to say, okay, I'm buying six bikes and I just want to sort out distribution in Ikeja and wherever, you know, that's the kind of thing. So this place we're setting up in the bookstore on the first floor, we're going to have a co-creative hub, but not in the co-working space and innovation hub for creatives, creative people. So it's a bit of tech, but like, mainly for the arts, for people to come, maybe they just need inspiration, they want to talk about some projects that they have with other people, but a space for writers, for artists, the people who often just get left behind. You're going to be getting busy in the next few months because you're creating an app, people can download and read books, and also, I heard it's also audio as well. You're creating a physical space, you're creating an innovation hub. That's quite busy. How are you going to be coping? It's also writing books. Are you going to be Right. Are we expecting more books? I'm writing books? children's books at the moment because it's just easier for me. <laughs> right. That was I about do have a novel. I'm about 26,000 words in. But um, it's difficult to find the time because man must eat as well. So, you know, I do the Book Buzz Foundation, which relies totally on funding. So when there's no funding, it's hard for me because I have to go and take on work that I don't want to do so I can pay my staff and things like that. But I realize that, to be honest, you are most effective, actually, in anything you want to do when you have, you know, different streams of income. Of income and yes. that's why I actually created Weeder Books because I thought to myself, I have to have at least one commercial thing, one commercial venture in my life. And we started that. I'd love to have more conversation with you about that uh, distribution, your assumptions around generating the demand, uh, unit economics, and a lot of things around it as well. So it's something we can have conversation around. Mm. But I want to end this conversation uh, so that I can give you maybe two questions to the audience by asking you some fire-run questions that I always ask. And it's just a quick answer to those questions. So number one question is, what is your biggest business pain point? What does that, that mean? So what is the biggest challenge that you have in your business at the moment? It could be staffing, it could be getting demand, it could be marketing. Staffing has never been a problem for me. This country is full of unbelievably intelligent and smart and sharp and innovative young people. That's never been a problem. Um, It's probably just, you know, money to do things. I'm just the right funding, funding to, and resources just, you to know, do them. But even that, to be honest, is not a problem because I'm working very closely with a bank, which helps. That's great. Yeah. That's so great. I will write IOU <laughs> and, and then, then I'll pay later. Oh, I'll, I'll pay it eventually. But it's one of the, I mean, incredible advantages for me of actually working with a bank, an amazing bank at that, a bank that actually really believes in this country and believes in young people. I mean, it's being run by 
by Abubakar Suleiman and Yemi Odubi. And every time I talk to those guys, they inspire me so much. I just feel like, okay, Ake Festival and all the things that I do have a home with them. They've been supporting Ake Festival, have they? They will, yeah. They have been, yeah. okay. What is your growth metric? Again, I will explain this. What is the number one thing that you look in your business that indicates that you're growing. It depends because I kind of run so many different things. The work that I do involves participation. Yes. So I think that's for me is key. The number of participation. Yes, it's participation. It's the numbers. That's what gives me the most satisfaction. Money for me is functional. Even when I have money, I don't keep it in my account. I give it to friends to hold for me because I will just give it away. You know, that's what I do. Somebody says they need this, I'll give it to them. So so it's not money. I'm not interested in the material, to be honest with you. Much more excited by seeing other people being excited and of course for me to see that, they have to be there. The impact so, yeah. and the participation. So which book are you reading at the moment or which books are you reading? Okay, you know I told moment? you I run a publishing house so I can be reading any number of books at the same time because um, we have readers who read the books and then the books come to me if all three or four readers like it so a lot of my work is also kind of reading and editing but for pleasure I'm reading the general theory of oblivion it's, it was about? written by Jose he's Angolan it's just escaped me now um, I've also started but didn't make much progress because I lost the book but I now have it on my Kindle is the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. He's talking about the black people that build the railroads. Yes, but the journey from Africa. Journey from Africa. Yeah, and we're trying to get him to Ake Festival. He won the National Book Award. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Which business is getting you excited at the moment apart from your own business? Just anything that has to do with tech. Which you see, I'm an you some of I'm not, I am always excited by innovation with technology, but when it has to do with health, you know, because I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to be one. I studied whatever it is. Look, when I was in Form 5, I was too lazy to study biology. I even studied health science, you know. My father was so disappointed in that, but that's the kind of person that I am. So since Form 3, nothing, but I'm jealous of scientists because there's so many of the stuff that they create, the results that they provide, and their input into our world that I think is just unbelievably helpful. So, you know, I like to read about it. I don't always understand it. I have to ask other people, this thing, what does it mean here, you know, that they're talking about? Just tell me in one minute, you know? I don't have enough space in my head to start taking on that kind of new knowledge. But, like, the one I was reading, I think it was... It was four, uh, two, three days ago, is how they've managed to get rats who have broken their spines, like really damaged their spines, to be able to use their limbs again. You know, like properly, like they had no problems. And it's all about the um, signals going from the brain to the spine and the nervous system. And that kind of stuff I just find really exciting. And you begin to think about the exponential impact of that yes, on humans exactly. later on. After well, that. of course, after rats, then humans. <laughs> yes. So that's yes. how it goes. It's quite good. It's interesting chatting with you. I knew it's going to be interesting, but I'm really, really pleasantly surprised that it's more interesting. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I did enjoy it very much. Thank you. 
This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h dot c-o. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.